Welcome to Wild Quincy, a podcast that looks into the little-known and forgotten past of Quincy, Illinois. People like Bruce Willis, Gerald Butler, and even Morgan Freeman have warned us that someday this might happen. No, we're not talking about tornadoes, floods, or even zombies. Instead, we're talking about the big ones and asking the question, what if the world ended? We'll look underground and to the skies for the answers coming up next. Here's your host, Chris Ketters and Travis Hoffman. Well, Travis got some good news. Uh, no Don told uh, their button man to clip us with cement shoes. That or else word travels slowly. We'll see. Maybe they're still getting <laughs> fitted, Chris. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I had to go look up uh, mafia slang terms in Wikipedia. So Don, by the way, is obviously the the boss man of, of any sort of group. The button man is, of course, the person who... Is going to off you. Button man. I, I haven't heard button man. That's new for me. To clip is to, of course, whack or kill somebody. And then cement shoes, of course, we all know what that yes, is. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. <laughs> of course, yeah, if you missed it, it was we talked about in the last episode with our first of many upcoming mobster episodes that we're going to have coming up because we are uh, dug into a rabbit hole, Travis, of a lot of interesting things. The more you dig into the, the history of Quincy and illicit activities, the deeper that well goes, Chris. So there's lots lots to draw from. Do want to uh, make a quick mention. When we posted the episode, we actually got a comment from Carolyn G, who says or claims to be the niece of Leo Moncton. And I think she was a little frustrated. I think there's a lot of myth and lore associated with Moncton. And she said, oh, wow, every time I read comments on Facebook about the house, my aunt or uncle, I come unglued. Everyone is an expert. Well, Chris, I mean, notably, we, we understand the sentiment, but I was quick to say, hey, we want to hear your side of the story. You know, we were just, we pulled everything we did from the episode on what was in the newspapers. But that's just one small perspective of Leo Moncton. So I've uh, formally asked her to send us uh, more information or even be a guest on a future recording of some variety. Uh, balls in her court. I hope she'll follow through. I'd love to hear more. Mark E. also had a quick a quick summary. He, uh, he had a, an interesting point. He says, the question from me is all the activities should be investigated on Moncton, but how he had the support to be so active in the area and was never jailed. So that's, you know, I think there's more to the Moncton story. Things are still unfolding, and I think they will be for years to come. We'll revisit that well down the road and see what it looks like. And I asked the same question when we had the episode because it was like, man, how did he? How was he being facilitated so easily to do what he was doing in town? He, it, there had to be more than just one man, and there had to be some people that were higher up in the uh, world of uh, governments and uh, politics and law enforcement that made things a little bit better. Our buddy Matt down at the Gold Line uh, Barbershop was kind enough to send us some additional research and uh, and information. And it appears that the sheriff of Adams County was very close with Moncton. 
Uh, rumor is that he was making $2,000 a year, but he still managed to buy, a, I think, a $16,000 home. So hmm. I think he might have been in on the action a little bit there, Chris. I'm not uh, <laughs> just just a, a thought. Who knows? We've just opened up a whole new can of worms on that. And there'll be very many more of uh, these mobster episodes. We have a lot more to cover. We'll be covering those uh, coming up in next season. Speaking of uh, next season, Travis, we're the second to last episode of season three already. It's crazy. But the cool news about all this is that we're adding more Patreon members. That's right. We have two more to welcome to the land of the wild things. First off is Renee Barner, who joined us at the $5 Medium Jeff special level. Laura Lansing was also kind enough to show her support, joining us as well at the $5 Medium Jeff special level. Uh, we They have unlocked a, I think, 37, 38 episode, bonus episodes, Chris, of content, as well as uh, being on the inside of what's happening in Wild Quincy. So we appreciate their support and would welcome yours as well. At uh, What is the URL for that, Chris? Uh, it's just patreon.com slash wildquincy. We'll have a promo coming up for that here just in a few minutes so you can hear the latest uh, information about that. But Travis, it is time for the question of the day. Are you ready for this? Yeah, lay it on me. I'm flying blind this whole episode, so it'll be exciting for me. <laughs> a little bit different I'm than normal. all about it. Yeah, so here's the question of the day. One of these things don't belong. Name the person who did not graduate from Quincy University. Okay, okay, I like where you're at. Here's your options. Is it John Mahoney, Francis Slay, Roy Brocksmith, or Kane? Again, we'll ask this. One of these doesn't belong. Name the person who did not graduate from QU. John Mahoney, Francis Slay, Rock Brocksmith, or Kane. You're shaking your head up and down, Travis. Kane, Kane just for those maybe not in the loop, it was a famous wrestler in the uh, for for a while, and I'm I'm familiar with a lot of lore, so I might be able to hit the, hit the nail on the head there. We'll find out at the end of the show, Chris. We'll have that answer, like Travis said, coming up at the end of this episode. But it's time to dig into the last what if episode, and this time we are going to the end of the world. Literally, we're talking about what if the world ended. We'll have more of that coming up next here on Wild Quincy. <laughs> Here's what you missed on the latest After Hours episode of Wild Quincy. He installed a secret phone in a tree. What? In the backyard. How was it secret? I, I was it covered in bark? I, wondered, I, wondered, I think he had to climb the tree to use it. Oh, that's awesome. Because. <laughs> it's, it's a tree fort phone. He knew that he suspected everybody and their dog had his phone lines tapped. So this was a separate line. Oh. That ran to the tree. Our After Hours episodes are available exclusively for Patreon members by going to patreon.com slash wildquincy. For just a couple dollars a month, not only will you double the amount of Wild Quincy episodes at your fingertips, but you'll also be supporting our efforts as we continue to dive into the wild and crazy history of our favorite town. Also, as a Patreon member, you can take part in our live events and Patreon-only outings, as well as having access to our regular episodes two days before they are released to the public. It's easy. Just head to patreon.com slash wildquincy. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash wildquincy and become a wild thing today. of the world. 
Travis, it's time to dig into our last what if. And uh, this can I just add a disclaimer? Usually it's a it's a trigger warning <laughs> disclaimer, but I've just got a sneak peek at some of the visuals Chris will be pulling from. <laughs> and if you're one of these people that likes to you know put a podcast on the old earbuds as you're drifting away into get some lovely restful sleep. You might want to wait until tomorrow to listen to this because this might scare the crap out of you a little bit. So, with that being said, let's jump into the fun, Chris. It was like sending you a uh, sending you like a bunch of like pictures of like wartime and death and, and things like that. Just kept getting bam, bam, bam. Not quite, not quite that, not quite that graphic, but definitely. Uh, food for thought, shall we say. Travis, uh, this is what if the world ended, and it's the Quincy edition, uh, to be put lightly. <laughs> so what I did is it took me a while to figure out how to even just lay all this out. And so finally came to the realization that how I'm going to lay this out is from what I believe, and, and even from some extent of what scientists believe are the least likely to most likely things that would happen. Okay. So there's four or five uh, that I go into detail about, but there's there's four or five that I didn't really want to go into detail about. So I'm going to lay those out at the beginning. These are possibilities, but I wasn't going to dig deep. Uh, and you'll realize why in some of these reasons here in a moment. Uh, some of those areas include synthetic biology. Or, uh, synthetic okay. biology. Is that like AI or what? No, no, no. This is different. So that would be like man-made viruses oh, and okay. man-made yeah, like yeah. something that would infect your body and then you of course have on the other side nanotechnology mm. so that is more along the lines of ai and then of course artificial intelligence itself and then uh, of course uh two others that are left here that i'm not going to touch actually three pandemics we just got through one i'm not going to talk about We've it we've had a lot of first-hand knowledge on that one recently exactly also climate change in general yeah that's a hot button subject. It's out there. You have your own beliefs or your own things and what it is. It's fine. I'm not going to get into it on this podcast. And then finally, the maybe one of the most important of all is extraterrestrial attacks. <laughs> oh, my. Oh, my. I'm not covering that area. Okay. Oof. Oof. Yeah, that's a whole episode itself. But I'm going to get into a few that uh, we need to talk about here. And again, these are going to be from the least likely to the most likely. And again, kind of some of this is based on scientists and some of this is based off of what I believe uh, some of the more likely ones are. Are you ready to start with this list, Travis? Yeah, I, I mean, let's let's go down the, the dark tunnel of our doom and see what happens, Chris. Okay, so let's start with one of the probably least likely out of this list, and that is a super volcano. Super volcano. Okay. When you think of super volcano, you think, of course, of Yellowstone. Right. But Travis, did you know there is a total of three super volcanoes in the United States? I had no idea. This is beyond my wheelhouse, so this is all new to me. Of course, uh, you have. We talked about Yellowstone. The other two that are here is there's one in California. It's uh, the Long Valley uh, Super Volcano. This volcano has been dormant for at least a hundred thousand years. The last eruption was seven hundred sixty thousand years ago. If it was to explode, uh, actually, the explosion back at that time was about uh, the equivalent of five hundred Mount St. Helens eruption. So you remember Mount St. Helens back in the eighties. Sure. 20 miles long, 11 miles wide, and there's 240 cubic miles of magma. Okay, so kind of a big one, okay? The next one is the Vowles Caldera. This is in New Mexico. By the way, Travis, a little side story for you real quick. I did a trip with, I was working, uh, driving a truck. I did a trip to Arizona. 
there are some really cool places on Interstate 40 where you can actually see old lava flows from this super volcano wow. on Interstate 40 still. It's so cool you go through them. It's like you're almost in Hawaii, but you're in New Mexico. It's crazy. Anyway, the Vales Cal Caldera last erupted 1.25 million years ago. Uh, there's been some smaller eruptions since as early as 40,000 years ago, and the rim is 13.7 miles in diameter. However, Travis, the big one that everybody's aware of is Yellowstone. It's 43 miles long, 28 miles wide. The last eruption was 2.1 million years ago. There's been eruptions, uh, three big ones. There's one 2.1, one 3, 1.3 million years ago, and then the latest was 640,000 years ago. And uh, so the question then becomes, will these bad boys ever erupt again? Okay, because it's been a while. Uh, will they? Maybe. Okay. <laughs> will that feel better now? The Vale's Caldera is pretty much non-existent. It's pretty much dormant now. It's The chances are extremely little to none that it would ever to, uh, ever uh, erupt again. The Long Valley and Yellowstone supervolcanoes, though, do have a little bit of a chance. They're still active. They still fluctuate uh, going up and down uh, with magma uh, building in and, and releasing out of it. But really, in all reality, it's still pretty much a 0% chance that it's ever going to explode in our lifetime. But we're, we're, in, we're all the way in Quincy, Chris, how how ah. would this possibly affect us? And you don't even have the notes in front of you, Travis, and that's what's coming up next. I had a, I had a hinker in that it might be. <laughs> of course, we're not going to have lava flows in Quincy, guys, but we are going to have one issue, and that is ashfall. Long Valley eruption, not really going to be an issue for Quincy. Obviously, there's going to be some larger scale effects if you would ever have that happen, like global cooling and things like that. Yellowstone, on the other hand, uh, not going to be good. Uh, Traps, I sent you just some images. We'll have these on our Facebook page. But uh, a study was just recently done, and it talked about ashfall rates across the United States depending on what time of year it was. So, ironically, if, if an eruption would happen somewhere between, let's say, January and September, ashfall rates would not be bad for Quincy, Okay. However, if it comes into the winter months, this is when you got the jet stream that comes farther south, it does change things up a little bit. And this doesn't sound like much, Travis, but ashfall would be around 10 to 30 millimeters for Quincy during those first three quarters, so January through September. So that it comes out to a little bit less than a, less than a quarter of an inch up to about an inch of, okay. of ashfall. Okay. However, go to the fourth quarter, October, November, we shoot up to where it possibly could have as much as a hundred millimeters mm. of ashfall hit Quincy. So that's nearly four inches. Again, you think four inches of, of snowfall, it doesn't seem like much for us, right? Snow melts. Snow melts, and snow's actually a lot less heavy oh, than ashes. Okay. So let's break this down. According to the United States Geological Survey, uh, anywhere between 10 to 30 inches of ashfall would be considered heavy ashfall and it would cause things like eye and respiratory ir irritation uh, possible crop damage animal equipment and infrastructure problems also it'd be really hard just in general to move the ash around so it would be like it would be like the worst snowstorm ever times like a hundred for like trying to move the stuff that around. would be a huge pain in the ash chris exactly. <laughs> nice but finally the biggest and one of the more important things is roofs Roofs can't handle that much weight, so weaker roofs will collapse mm. with this much. Just an inch of ash could do this. Now, if you add to that 100 millimeter possibility, then practically every roof, once it would have this fall on it or if it would get wet, it pretty much turns into concrete and then eventually 
all roofs are going to collapse if you have this this ash stay on top of it for a long period of time. So you're not only looking at that, but also looking at uh, phone and electrical damage also to electrical lines. So again, chances of this happening, very unlikely, but what Quincy has to worry about is the ash fall. Thoughts, Travis? It makes sense. Uh, I, I never would have thought of it just going walking down the street. Just the, the effect of that jet stream and the variability of the time of year is dramatic. Um, it's yeah. really eye-opening, just how fragile things can be, you know, the butterfly effect, so to speak, on just the little differences things can make. Well, you know, I think we feel all pretty warm and fuzzy about that. <laughs> you ready to handle uh, the next one? How else can we meet our demise, Chris? <laughs> Well, we could fall prey to an asteroid. I thought you were going to say mountain lion for a minute. <laughs> well, maybe. This sounds worse. This sounds considerably worse. There's a podcast, a show called The What If Show, and they just simply put how to survive a asteroid. And there's four steps. The first one's the most obvious is pray for a scientific breakthrough, because sure. in all honesty, that's all we can hope for. Second is leave the strike area immediately, which means like, you know, if, if we know that the asteroid's going to hit Quincy directly, we're going to move away from Quincy. The third thing is find a bunker. Usually one to two feet of concrete is usually significant enough if you're out of the strike area. And then finally, rationing food, because guess what? You're going to be in that bunker for several years. Mm. So you have to make sure you keep your food and water rations. But let's talk more specifically and, and quickly about Quincy. Okay. So depending on where the strike is at, it will really determine if whether you need to move or not. But according to NASA, the probabilities of an asteroid capable of destroying a city striking Earth is 0.1% every year. So it's low, but never zero. Never zero. If one of these does hit Earth, there is a 70% chance it'll land in the ocean, a 25% chance it'll land over a relatively unpopulated area. So a 5% chance that you would actually land in a populated area. This is what happened with the tungsten or Tunguska uh, impact uh, over Russia. You, you guys saw the video, I'm sure, of that or, or pictures where it was literally hundreds of miles of forest was just flattened, uh, but it was all in rural areas, so there was no uh, deaths that they were aware of, or maybe one or two. Well, that's one of the stories of the Tunguska. <laughs> we won't get the conspiracy hat on right now, but yeah, I'm familiar. Uh, the odds of a five to 10 kilometer wide asteroid. That's, uh, that's the kind that, you know, kills dinosaurs. The chances well, it's a of good thing there's none around. Yeah. <laughs> the chances of hitting earth is get this point zero 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 one percent chance. So low, low, so low feeling better, feeling better about my situation. Asteroid is still in in scientific approach and also from my opinion, which may be more important, is more of a chance than a supervolcano. So there's a higher chance on the asteroid. Higher chance. Now, you, you didn't mention, I mean, I think the biggest scare to me personally, Chris, is when you were mentioning the, the things to do in lieu of trying to survive an asteroid. How come Bruce Willis uh, going up and diverting <laughs> the asteroid? Because Bruce Willis just retired from acting. He's not, He can't oh. be our savior anymore. He's, we don't have a savior anymore. Bruce oh, the, boy. Who's the next well, Bruce Willis? Ben. Ben. Ben? Yeah. Ben. Ben Affleck. I mean, he, he can do it. He couldn't be Batman very long. He wouldn't sacrifice himself. But. I don't know. All right, so we got asteroids. So let's move on to something more, a little bit more man-made. And this is the third one. Nuclear bombs and fallout. Yeah. We start with the Cold War. The Cold War happened between 1947 and 1991. A lot of this happened because they say 1991 anyway, because the Soviet Union pretty much, you know, dissolved 
1991, right? Absolutely. The peak of all this nuclear activity was actually 1981. And the reason why we say this is the peak is because according to some uh, information that was put out, it's an organization that it talks about the ending of nuclear bombs in the United States or in the world. There's a, a worldwide organization that focuses on that. Anyway, in 1981, there was 47,000 nuclear weapons in the world. United States had 27,000 of them, and the Soviet Union had 20,000 of them. Hmm. Hmm. Code to 2021, just last year, the United States was down to 5,550. Russia had 6,255. Then you had a couple others like China, who had about 350. A couple other countries, and of course, North Korea, who we have to worry about, has between 40 and 50. By the way, Traps, fun fact, United States has six countries that host approximately 150 of the United States nuclear weapons. Oh, so we we got them across the pond. We do, like Turkey and places like that. We actually have nuclear weapons in those countries. Kind of neat little fact. However, we got to go to this thing that I came across, Travis, and we're going to go back to 1971. Okay, bell bottoms, groovy hair. We're there. Also, nuclear fallout, nuclear Ooh, war. Not so good. November 9th, 1971, the Herald Wig put out a community shelter plan in the paper. The plan was approved by the Adams County Board of Supervisors. The goal was to, quote, save lives in Adams County in the event of a nuclear attack. So let's talk about this plan. The plan was for the city, if there was a threat they would do an audible alarm or signal that would last three to five minutes. If there was an actual take cover, which meant that, uh, you know, an alert meant to be prepared, but a take cover alarm meant like it's happening right now. Get, get somewhere safe. Right. The take cover signal was going to be a, a wavering or intermittent blast of audible sound. So those were the signs in 1971. So what do people do? They go to shelters. Okay, where 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 would you go for something like that? Exactly. Well, here's the crazy thing, Travis, is that people who lived in the city of Quincy went to specific shelters, and there's quite a few. Actually, there was 40 shelters just in the Quincy really? area, which is crazy uh, because they say here the plan says that over there's 121,000 areas of protected spaces in the county that would accommodate 100 percent of Adams County's population. If you had time, then what you did is went home and then went to the shelter where your home was at. But let's say you didn't have time and it was alert or a take cover immediately thing. You went to whatever shelter that you had. The weird thing about this, Travis, is that they obviously had the 40 that were in the city limits. But guess how many they had outside the city limits? One. That's oof. That sounds like not enough, maybe. So let's say you live in Clayton. Okay. And you hear that there's uh, an alert and you have to get to this the bunker, if you will. The bunker is what we just talked about two episodes ago, the underground caves. And we're back to that. Yes. Uh, so the whole population of outside of the city of Quincy, Adams County, their spot to go to, no matter where you were at in the county, northern county, southern county, what eastern county, wherever, you were going to the underground caves. Boy, I have some problems with this whole the whole plan, Chris. Who has that much time to plan 
when a nuclear weapon is heading your way. Yeah, and that brings up a good point. So that goes back to the difference between an alert and then the take cover. So they felt when they created a plan like this that more often than not, you are going to have ample amount of time to go to a safe location. It wasn't like the bomb is coming, it's going to be here in two minutes. They figured that you probably had... 10 12 hours before okay okay they were going to strike so and i guess that goes to the bigger question of what was the determination if an alert was going to be issued was it that the u.s government said things are becoming intense this could happen or was it the bombs have already been shot off kind of thing yeah what's that what's that marker in the sand i gotta i I don't even know where where that kind of like satellite tracking existed in the 70s you know i know that uh Oh, there was. I'm sure there were some rudimentary forms of that, but you got to think that the technology now that seems more feasible, but that would seem like it'd be more questionable back then. Maybe some of our listeners know some of the history of that. Love to hear it. It kind of feels like this whole plan was put into place to give everybody this kind of false hope and warm and fuzzies. Because let's talk about the underground mine, the underground cave. From a nuclear fallout perspective, that doesn't seem like it's going to be very effective with the amount of no. openings in that cave. So, yeah, and that's going to go into uh, something we'll talk about here in a minute. But the thing about it, and maybe I'm not sure how well they were versed in it back in the 70s. I would assume that they would have known pretty well. And I guess, you know, even in the 70s with the height of the nuclear or the Cold War, it was... Um, if it was going to happen to where you're going to have nuclear bombs shot off, it was going to be a what they called the mutually agreed destruction. They were going to shoot every single bomb that they had. If that's the case, yeah, it's not good. They're shooting everywhere. I guess, really, if you're just going to have like one or two bombs that are going to explode and they're not necessarily close to the Quincy area back in this time frame, you're going to go there for protection. But in all honesty, you're probably not going to get affected by the nuclear bomb in general. Because, you know, we always have these fears that, oh, this radiation fallout's going to be so intense, it's going to cover the whole United States. That's not really the case. There's not a big enough bomb hmm. that's going to cause that much fallout that's going to cause that much of a problem. I mean, look at look at what happened in Japan yeah. with the uh with the uh tsunami oh well no the tsunami just happened just recently you had you had the the nuclear uh power plants that that melted down and they actually have maps of showing where the radiation was and it doesn't go that far Mm -hmm. it just doesn't happen and we'll have a graphic uh, we'll show you talk about here in a minute that kind of explains that in a little more detail but before we get to that uh, they did have one quote in here. I'm just going to read you the whole paragraph because I thought it was kind of an interesting perspective of 1970s and nuclear warfare, okay? It says, if a very brilliant flash or heavy shock occurs and you're not in a shelter, act as follows. Indoors, drop to the floor, get under a bed or desk or heavy table, stay on the floor out of the line of flying glass, shield your face and head. If you're outdoors, quickly get behind a tree, into a ditch or other protection, then immediately go to the best protection you can reach no more uh, that you can reach in no more than 30 minutes. If possible, follow your family plan. If you cannot reach a public shelter or home basement, choose any substantial building for protection. For us being born when we were born, I think we missed a lot of this Cold War stuff. And while we might sit here and kind of poke fun at, at some of these things, this was a very real thing for people, you know, 10, 20 years older than us. I'm sure a lot who are listening where they had drills and stuff for school for this. I think it's so hard to find the same perspective that they had to deal with. But I think what we know now is 
boy, it, there's not a lot you're going to be able to do to protect yourself in that situation. And uh, I think I think in some capacity, the government was required to have some kind of plan, even if depending how effective it was, at least it was something to help put the public at ease it feels like you when you create plans it creates peace of mind i think yeah um and so i think that helps that helps with the process a little bit it makes things a little bit better and of course you know things kind of slow down but let's talk about today travis it has seemed like it's simmered down a little bit however we got what's going on with russia and ukraine right now obviously part of the reason why the united states is not getting involved is because you got two major you know, nuclear powerhouses still that it's all it only takes a second for somebody to get upset. And then you have a World War Three happening. <laughs> you right. know, I always like the saying, I'm sure you've heard of it is that and I don't know who said it, but it's uh, I don't know what World War Three will be fought with. But I know World War Four will be fought with sticks and stones. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I wish I knew who I, that was quoted from. If you guys know, let me know. But uh, I always thought that was a really nice, neat saying. Of course, you got Russia, like you said, and then also North Korea. It's always been kind of weird. And then now they got nuclear capabilities and they've threatened to do things. Let's talk about today's world with Quincy, though. Let's get back to the subject at hand. Let's do it. Unless there's a complete annihilation where you had mutually assured destruction, where everybody sends off their nuclear bombs at the same cha- at the same time, chances are really, really low that Quincy will ever be directly or even indirectly impacted by a nuclear bomb. The fear during the Cold War, and still is to this day, is that a preemptive nuclear strike against the United States from Russia would include the bombing of key military bases, however. So in today's world, if you had a preemptive strike from Russia, what would end up happening is they would want to take out the things that would cause them harm first. One of those things, Travis, is in Missouri. Yeah. And that is none other than Whiteman Air Force Base in Sedalia, Missouri. I had to go to their website. Whiteman has the uh, is the home of the 509th Bomber Wing. Their mission statement for this Air Force base is literally execute nuclear options and global strikes anywhere, anytime. Man, <laughs> that, that is their mission that statement. That doesn't bode well. That's a pretty big target. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and so obviously, I was able to find that information pretty easily, which makes me think that pretty much the Russians will be able to find that information pretty easily and know where to strike. So, let's throw this in there. We are going to put a image. There's a lot of cool websites you can go to, Travis. I created an image of one of them where you can place a nuclear bomb and actually take different size nuclear bombs and place them places and determine what the fallout is, how much damage it does, how many people it's going to kill. So I went ahead and made one of these, and what it is, is it is based on if a nuclear bomb would hit Whiteman Air Force Base. And it also determines is that is based off an 800 kiloton bomb, which by the way is the most common, like the Russian government has a ton of these 800 800 ton kiloton bombs. They're actually called um, the Topol SS-25s to get specific, but you throw that on Whiteman and you get the winds in just the right direction and yes, Quincy is impacted. We're not the darkest orange, but we're definitely pretty orange in a scale of uh, orange to to yellow, it looks like. Yes. We're not in the most dangerous of it all, but we're we're in the line line of it. What does that disturbing orange uh, circle mean for us exactly in this situation? 
fallout from radiation. Mm, not great. Again, this literally it's it's one of those like what we were saying just a minute ago with everything having to line up perfectly. That's going to be the case. Now, if you had like a Kansas City or a St. Louis, which both of those are pretty unlikely, but if you had like one of those that were struck by a nuclear bomb, the chances would be even less that Quincy would be affected. Really? Whiteman Air Force Base is probably going to be a little bit more of a likely scenario because of, of course, it being an Air Force Base. But then secondly, because when wind directions most of the time are going to be coming out of the southeast or southwest, excuse me, that's a normal general direction of winds. So the chances increase a little bit that you're going to have if that would happen, that we would have to be concerned about that. So if you hear about a nuclear explosion or there's a threat and you hear that Whiteman got hit, take a quick look at what way the winds are blowing because it's coming out of the southwest. You got to get covered quickly. Yeah, that's uh, that's eye opening, Chris. That's eye opening. So that's wow. really about it for the nuclear fallout. I think that's sufficient. I think that's sufficient. I <laughs> think, think we covered it. <laughs> well, let me go change my drawers real fast, and we'll uh, see what else can uh, do it. Well, there's one thing that's worse than nuclear oh, bombs, boy. Travis. Okay. Actually, there's two more things left that are All worse. Right. But this one has something to do with nuclear bombs. I think I know where you're going, but let's get there. So let's talk about the thing that happens when a nuclear bomb is uh, detonated, and that is an EMP pulse. Yes, yes. Some people probably, this was associated with the Ocean's Eleven movie. Oh, yes. At a small scale, where they need a distraction in a casino and need all the the power to go out, and they, they get a device to do such a thing. Um, just to add a little context to something you may be familiar with, but I'm going to turn the floor back over to you, Chris. No, I'm glad Talk you did. That's a about great comparison. EMPs, not in a Hollywood scenario, but in this scenario. <laughs> in a much worse scenario. Yes. So an EMP is also referred to as electromagnetic pulse. What it is is the side effect of a nuclear detonation high above the atmosphere. Usually it needs to be above about 25 miles above the atmosphere or above the ground. When the detonation happens, the air molecules are ionized by gamma rays, producing positive ions and recoil electrons. And so what that pretty much means is that when this happens, it produces this immense electromagnetic field. When this happens and it comes and falls to the ground, all of a sudden, all these electronics and all the stuff that uses electronics, they get fried. Literally, they just get literally just fried by this ions, these positive ions floating in the atmosphere. So it's not good. <laughs> and it's everything um, that's electric, right? Yeah, it is. Um, and we'll talk about a little bit more. Uh, there's some, some discrepancies because this was a big thing in the early two thousands. And there was literally like, um, like Senate re- overview oversight committees that were reviewing this information. It seems like some of the information's changed since the early 2000s, and we'll get to that in a second. But when an EM field gets to an electronics, uh, of course, like I said, they destroy everything. However, when it happens, if it would happen to us, we wouldn't feel anything, Travis. Like our bodies would not sense anything that this happened. Um, That's you wild. wouldn't notice a thing. But uh, all of a sudden, like, uh, you know, the, the, the computers were on or are the the radio you're listening to this on it just stops and you're like what the world just happened it's not working uh, my car stopped what the heck it's just all these things all of a sudden happen but you never saw the the bomb go off that's that's interesting how big of a of, of a nuclear weapon would release an emp any size nuclear weapon any, 
any it's a side yeah. effect of a nuclear reaction so yep. it's like right now they have the technology actually and that was the thing it was always emp pulses or emp uh, or electromagnetic pulses have always been there in nuclear bombs it happened in japan all these places it's always happened i was just gonna ask i, I i've never looked at like nagasaki or hiroshima from the perspective of what kind of emp well here's a question maybe you do or don't know this chris how far of a range would the EMP have as opposed to like the actual destruction of of a of a detonation? So here's the thing, and let's let's use Japan as an example, okay? Is that you did have the the pulse that happened with those bombs in Japan. However, the bomb was exploded low enough to the ground that it did not did not go far enough out. So I the see. the blast area of the nuclear explosion was still within the same diameter of the emp blast that happened so you didn't actually get to feel the effects of an emp because the nuclear detonation everything was already destroyed destroyed anyways yeah yeah okay so it's the height above yeah i see what you're saying yeah yeah yeah. okay it's atmospheric conditions or what yeah it's just it depends on how high you have it up there and then of course yeah putting something in there like uh and we'll talk about this in a second but the size of a bomb will make a huge determination on on how much of an impact it would have real quick just go through these some of the effects so things like i mentioned computers tablets kitchen appliances tvs they'd stop working but those are small things you got to worry about the big things. Electrical grids go down. Cell phone communications go down. Pretty much every sort of transportation system like rail and air and airplanes, those all stop. Uh, Cars with electronic systems, they're done. Um, It's just everything stops. Now, there are some exceptions, and I'll tell you this, Travis. We've been searching, and if we find one, we're going to buy one. Uh, We've been looking for a Jeep because if you get Jeeps that don't have the electronic systems in them, like pre-1985-ish, yeah. you can still drive those. And so if you get a, if you have a vehicle like an old school 1966 Camaro, things like that, those don't have electronics in them. So they would still work. However, the newer cars will not work because of the electronics. Okay. Oh, wow. Another thing that's kind of interesting, your wristwatch, if you're wearing one, unless it's like, a, you know, I, what do you call those? I've one. Digital. I've, yeah. Smart yeah, watches. If yeah. it's just a regular watch, it'll still work. Um, cell phones are actually probably going to survive an EMP blast. Really? However, <laughs> the cell phone network that they are on will not. <laughs> so you might be able to watch videos and check out photos that you've made from a long time ago, but you're not going to get on uh, Google and do a search of why did my phone Why not work? wouldn't the phone be affected, Chris? Uh, there's, Is there, there any rationale that you came across on that? It's, it's small enough that it's not going to get affected, I believe. There's some things that if it's small enough, they can't infiltrate. Uh, from my understanding, it can't get into it. So, like, very small appliances that don't have a lot of... I, and I don't know. Okay. I mean, yeah, that's, that's my own understanding. I don't know a, a specific reason why, but... That's interesting. Um, I wouldn't have guessed that. Yeah. Hmm. They believe that cell phones would actually survive. Um, so I need to load all the episodes of Wild Quincy onto my phone somewhere <laughs> so it doesn't get that, taken out by the Omega Pulse. That yeah. wasn't a shameless plug at all. Oh. Uh, all right. So let's give a scenario out because there is a scenario that's a worst case scenario and it's been discussed many times. But let's talk about it. It is a 1.4 megaton bomb is launched 250 miles above Kansas. Most of the electronics that were not protected in the entire continental United States would fail. Ooh. Kansas is the hot spot for 
an EMP blast because if you get it high enough and you have enough of an, enough energy, it will destroy all of the grids, all of electronics across the whole United States. And guess what, people? We are back in the 1800s. Talk about a hot spot. I got me sweating just thinking about this. Um, <laughs> so you're talking the entire United States, continental yep. United States, is pretty much, like you said, back into the 1800s. Yep, exactly. And it will take years and years, maybe even probably decades, before we even think about getting to where we are today. There was an example. 1962, there was a test done. It was a 1.4 megaton nuclear weapon. It was detonated over Johnston Island, which is about at an altitude of about 250 feet or 250 miles, excuse me. The effects of the, the blast were felt as far away as Hawaii, which was 800 miles away from the detonation. Wow. This is 1962. Street lights and fuses failed in Oahu, and even telephone service was disrupted on another island. And that was 800 miles away. Yeah, I think they underestimated the potency there. That's incredible. Now, there is some disagreement among scientists that an EMP would do much destruction, as it's previously believed. It's kind of faded back a little bit. They don't believe that maybe it won't be as bad. But in all honesty, the technology is there and the knowledge is there that if if the right scientists in the right country did the, did something like this, it wouldn't be hard to have an EMP attack. And, and Travis, let's put this into analysis before we get into the Quincy side of things, is that in my opinion, if you're gonna have, if a country's going to attack another country, you don't do it by blowing things up and creating all this nuclear fallout and all this nuclear, these issues. What you do is you send them back 130 years. It's the greener way to do things, Chris. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's a dangerous and scary concept that all it's of, horrifying. All, we, yeah, we could yeah. be sitting here and then one day everything just shuts off and we're back to 1860 all over again. Now, I have a quick question. You may or may not yeah. have an answer for me on the nature of an EMP pulse. Is it the immediate pulse of that, or is it have is does that residual effect? Would that taint other things? No, no, it it's, it's just more, the more immediate. Okay, yeah, within the first, and I don't, I, I, am not, hopefully, not mistaken or saying this mistakenly, but I read something along the lines of typically it's going to happen within the first thirty seconds to a minute of the explosion, okay. Okay. and then it's done. Which, yeah. which might sound like oh, big, big deal. We just get new stuff, but to your point, everything electronic is done basically. So, Everything that you yeah. build to build those electronics, it yeah. no longer works. <laughs> That's I mean, um, and, and depending on what's going on in the world, there's a great, great book. If you want to get into it, it's fiction. However, it was cited and the author actually went to Washington and uh, testified about it. Uh, it's called One Second After. It is an amazing book. I highly recommend it. Uh, it's really breaks down. It's this guy in Virginia when an EMP pulse goes off and, and uh, how the world changes so quickly and how it takes you know, forever for things to come back around to the way that we were. So it's a very good book. But yeah, it's it's scary to think. And you don't and what I was going with that is you don't know what other what's happening in other countries. This could be a world war happening. You take out the United States and then you're on your own thing. And now all the other countries are dealing with with whatever's happening. And the United States is literally in the dark and they have to deal with their own problems. And you literally took the United States out of any fight that you're having in another country. Yeah, that's that's a huge yeah, strategic move. Mm -hmm. Quick question. I, I, I'm yeah. still wrapping my head around this whole EMP pulse. 
theoretically, not that it would do much good with the whole grid being gone, basically. But if you had a bunker, could the the EMP pulse penetrate into a, the, a bunker as well, or is it kind of it, it uh, falls off through you know penetration of that? I'm not totally sure about. Okay, I think yeah, it's, it's a crazy. I, question, I, I don't. But. Yeah, I, I think it does penetrate a little ways in, but I'm not sure how far it goes in. That yeah, that would be. I'll have that for. I'll have that for our Patreon. How about that? Even if it did, though, to your point, I mean. Okay, so now you have who plans for that? Yeah, that I mean, hopefully, hopefully the United States government, yeah. but <laughs> right, we'll find, hopefully we won't have to find out. Yeah. So real quick before we wrap up on this one, let's talk about the direct effects for Quincy. Yeah, let's. I don't know if we can make it worse, but let's try. <laughs> Any country again, as I mentioned, that would be a threat against the United States, they can easily just do a Google search and find out. Hey, let's put this bomb over Kansas. We're going to take care of the United States pretty easy. It really doesn't matter. This is where it gets even more grim. It really doesn't matter what altitude you're putting a nuclear, uh, putting an EMP bomb at. If you're putting it over Kansas, Quincy is in the impact zone. No matter pretty much, unless it's like at the surface, uh, anything up in the atmosphere, Quincy is going to get affected. So if you're going to take into any of these in account of how you're going to have immediate effects and how Quincy is going to be pretty much no matter what in the path of this, an EMP uh, bomb is going to be going to be one of those uh, ideas. If you got an Amish buddy, you might want to get in tight because I don't think we have many Amish listeners, Chris, but I would really, really am glad that there are some Amish communities because that's your next metropolis. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, So, Travis. I'll be churning butter like a son of a gun trying to earn my my way into that community. So it sounds so bad of what we just talked about, but what if I told you there's still one more thing? Oh that's come worse. on, no! <laughs> Is it, it's not mountain lions, right? <laughs> still not mountain lions. Robot mountain lions, Chris? No, not okay. robot. Fine. What is it? How about a solar storm? Oh shh. <laughs> okay, solar. Okay. The sun is going to get us. Okay. The sun is literally going to get us. There are two types of solar storms. There's a solar flare and a coronal mass ejection. Just to give you a little bit of science real quick. Solar flare is an intense burst of radiation coming from a release of magnetic energy associated with sunspots. They can last anywhere from a minute or two up to hours. They're fairly common. Uh, They can last from either from like a day to even up to a week long. The range and strength of flares uh, are really varying. They can go from an M1 flare, which is pretty much nothing, to even up as high as we're going to talk about an X35 flare, which is an extreme case. And then, of course, you got the coronal mass ejections. They're also called CMEs. They're a large explosion of plasma and magnetic fields from the sun's corona. A CME can arrive to Earth as little as 15 to 18 hours. Travis, it's time to go back into the history books and go to 1859. Okay. Have you heard anything called the Carrington event? No, no. What is what is that? So September 1st, 1859, a guy by the name of Richard Carrington was sketching out a sunspot when he was blinded by a sudden flash of light. Uh, Carrington described it as a white flare with the event lasting about five minutes. Wait the a minute. Flare- wait, 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 wait. Yeah. This guy was staring at the sun? Uh, telescope with uh, 
a, a guide or a, a okay. filter on it. Okay. okay. We're good. We're, uh, we're, good. We're, yeah. we're back. Okay. We're back. Sorry. Sorry. Not not staring directly at the sun. I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to trust this guy's uh, wisdom <laughs> No wonder why he's blind. He's been the staring sun. at the sun. I mean, can't trust that yeah. guy. He's not very smart. Yeah. Right, yeah. The flare was actually what they refer to as a CME, and it was directed straight at Earth. It was the first time ever this has been recorded by anybody. The burst of plasma from the ejection traveled from the sun to the Earth in only 17.6 hours. It traveled, get this, over 90 million miles in just 17 hours. The next day after Carrington observed this event, an unprecedented geomagnetic storm began. Telegraphs went haywire, with some of them actually catching on fire. And there was actually a report that I came across that some telegraph workers in the Boston area actually disconnected the batteries from the telegraphs and were able to still communicate with other telegraph systems with no power connected to the telegraphs themselves. They were literally being powered by the electromagnetic in the sky from the uh, solar storm. <laughs> Some telegraph pylons were actually sparking. They were There was so much electricity in the sky. That is just insane to think about. And you know what auroras are, right? Yeah. You know they're pretty rare, especially in the Quincy area and definitely further south. It's very rare that we ever see it. Well, an aurora actually at this time in September of 1859 was visible at the equator Golly. So that tells you how strong it was. So that happened in 1859. Everything that's been based off of solar flares and any solar storms are always referred back to the Carrington event that happened uh, because this was major. We're going to go to a second event, and this is where it gets scary at, Travis. All right? Oh, this We're go- This is where it gets scary at, Travis? <laughs> So all that was just the child's play. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Let's go to just... 19 years ago, Halloween of 2003, there was a massive solar X-ray flare, which is estimated to be an X-28 class solar flare. This was the sixth largest storm ever recorded. This happened in 2003. Luckily, only a small part of the actual coronal mass ejection or CME was directed at Earth, so really nobody noticed it. Um, however, again, just being in the wrong place at the wrong time, if this would have been just a little bit farther over, it would have been almost as bad as the Carrington event in 1859. However, it wasn't, it missed the, it missed the earth. So there was a few transformers in South America that were destroyed. The Aurora was actually visible as far South as Texas during uh, that November of 2003 flights had to be lowered to a lower altitude because of radiation levels and upper levels. So like around 40,000 feet, there was too much radiation that it was dangerous for the people flying planes. So they had to put planes lower. Uh, and then uh, finally, uh, let's see here. It's uh, 59%. This is crazy. 59% of all the satellites in orbit were affected by some way because of this event. It was either by they went offline for a while or they just went berserk and went way off course over half of the satellites got messed up by this event Jeez. so that happened in 2003 just 19 years ago so let's talk about today yeah carrington event carrington event was not as bad as it could have been if you take today's electronics today's technology i was just gonna ask about that yeah because it was 1858 was it 1859 literally you have some places that have different you have some places have electricity you have some places that are doing but i mean are doing telegraphs but really telegraphs are pretty much the extent 
of what's going on in the yeah, world in yeah. 1859. Let's take today's world. Now all of a sudden you have these electrical grids, you have communications, you have all these different things that are happening. And if you take a Carrington size event and you put that in today's world, it would be a devastating events. Um, it's estimated that an event like this would happen in today that if it would happen today, power would be lost for years that we would lose our electrical grid for years. Is that a similar effect to the an EMP attack? In pretty way? much exactly the yeah. same thing. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty much it, what you're doing is you're 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 taking and you're ionizing the 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 electrons in the atmosphere and it's too much for, you know, the for electronics to handle because they're used to a certain level of electricity coming in and then you're just amplifying that majorly and it just breaks them. I mean, just put in layman's terms. Mm. Out of all the possible scenarios we've discussed, a major solar event has the best chance of occurring in any given year. Upwards of 3% chance of it occurring in any given year, Travis. Hmm. So we're basically just doing a ring around the rosy again, you know, up with a death cannon potentially pointing <laughs> at us. Exactly. And if we're in the wrong place at the wrong time, then good night, Irene. Out of all the things that we've mentioned, even, you know, man-made or not, a solar storm is the most dangerous. And you take it EMPs and solar storms, these last two things, the world has become, and especially the United States, has become so dependent on electronics and electricity and all these first world things that it's going to be devastating to countries that are depending upon these things if you have an event like this occur. Hmm. So let's put the last piece of the puzzle before we wrap this all up. What about Quincy? What about Quincy? What about about Quincy Quincy with a solar storm? Quincy actually comes away a little bit, potentially at a little bit of of a advantage when it comes to a solar storm. How so? Because we are not a major metropolitan area, so it's a little bit easier for repairs to happen in the city. It's not gonna take as long to repair transformers and and lines and things like that to get us back up and running. The only hiccup to that question I don't know the answer to is where Quincy gets their power from. The location of where the power comes from will have to be started first, but the Quincy City, Quincy and electrical companies can start working on replacing grids, replacing transformers, getting everything back up to normal. And, you know, you might be a year or two ahead of what would take St. Louis to do the same amount of stuff because there's a lot more transformers in St. Louis than there are in Quincy. Hmm. So hmm. Quincy does have a little bit of a benefit when it comes to that. Hmm. So Travis, that is it. What do you think? Time to go to sleep, right? If you're the kind of person that suffers from anxiety just remember it's it's a small chance but probably not small as we'd like but i think that brings up a good point travis just because it's a small chance doesn't mean it's not not a chance at all and i think that always goes into the thought is that at least try to do something to be prepared yeah. So like have even in our scenario, even our scenario, we have extra cans of food. We 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 store extra food that we literally have a, a, a box of stuff that is our emergency box. It has matches and, and things like that and, and food and, and things that we have like it has a wind up radio even in it so we can keep in touch if something like this happens. So at the minimum, I know this sounds scary, but it, it really pushes a point is that no matter what, be a prepper. 
prepare for these things and make your family a little bit safer when it comes down to if one of these things happens, at least you're going to have a little bit of an advantage that those other people might not have. And if nothing else, you have a lot of time to really make the perfect aluminum foil hat complements <laughs> your outfit. So, On the Patreon episode, we're going to be talking about those extraterrestrial uh, oh, attacks. Gosh. So oh, be looking gosh. For that. <laughs> well, Chris, that was eye-opening. You went down some in- super interesting rabbit holes. It can be a little daunting to talk about, but you know what? Ignorance is probably the biggest threat of of, of all of these things. Um, at least people are aware of the reality of the situation. And uh, knowing is half the battle, right? So let us know, guys, what you think. What's your scary thing? What's the thing that makes you scared? Uh, what's that thing that worries you at night with uh, natural disasters, man-made disasters? What is it? What's those things uh, that make you nervous? But, Travis, that is the what if. That's the final what if. And the question is, what if the world ended? We'll be back with more after this on Wild Beats. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Merry Christmas. Well, Travis, uh, that is one of those things that, but it's probably been like 30 years since that ad's played, and I still can pretty much just just repeat it by heart <laughs> as you're drinking coffee. <laughs> Is it Folgers? It is Folgers, Chris. Oh, jeez. And it is delightful. Just like that ad. Just like that ad is delightful. You knew it was Christmas time when when Peter came home early in the morning and uh, he didn't. He knew how to wake him up yeah. with the smell of Folgers coffee. That's right. It's classic. It's a classic. It is a classic. Do they still play it? You know, I'm not sure. I, f- I feel like I've seen that within the last 10 years. It's a greatest hit. It reminds you of the, uh, you remember the the bells ringing with the Hershey Kisses? Yeah, that's been around forever too. They've re, they've like remastered that video, yep. but that's been around for thirty years. But they need to remake it. I, I think we should create a uh, like a, a, a change dot org position to remaster the Folgers Peter comes home, but not redo it. Not redo it. Don't change the people. Don't no. Just make the footage a little clearer. A little better. Exactly. No, you can't. You can't redo that. That's a, that's a, that's an institution of uh, commercials. We love it. Just just clean it up and shove it on there. That's all we say. That's got to be cheap. I mean, I'll remaster it for them. I'll all I'll right, buy right. a few more cups of coffee for that. There you go. There we go. All right, Travis, are we ready to bring in the golden pipes? I am ready, Chris. And now it's time for words of wisdom from Adams County. 
So it's time to turn to the wit, the wisdom, forefathers and foremothers of Adams County. Travis, we are talking into the world scenarios in this episode. So what better thing to do than go to death warnings? Oh, God. This should be <laughs> so good. We, we need to be prepared. All right. So I got a few of them that I pulled out here that we'll go through. It's going right, to involve ready? a dead cat, I bet. Oh, nicely done. So let's get into these death warnings. So 10,193. When windows rattle without an apparent cause, you may expect a death. Uh, okay. okay. I'll buy that for a dollar. 10,174. Drop an umbrella on the floor signifies a murder in that house. Good Lord. 10,133. Never rub soap over your skin on Friday or you will die before the year ends. <laughs> Don't use soap on your skin on Fridays or you will die before the year ends. There were some dirty people in the Quincy area. Yeah. Saturday <laughs> mornings, Fridays. everybody was a little riper than usual. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 10,089. Accidentally putting a rope around a man's neck shows that he will die by hanging. What in the world would you be doing to accidentally <laughs> put a rope around a man's neck? Exactly. Two more here for you. Uh, 9,876. A dog that stretches himself out on the ground in front of you is measuring your grave. Oh. Last one's a story. 9,769. You'll like this one, Travis. It has to do with a cat. Of course it does. If an old tomcat comes to your house and says, Lord, and Lord have mercy on me, and keeps raising the devil, run him away, for you will die. If you don't, an old tomcat came to my door one night and kept howling, Lord, and Lord have mercy. I went and ran him away. I stood and looked out the window to see where he would go, for I wanted to see who would die in the neighborhood next. Do you know he went right to the preacher's house and stood on his door and kept howling, Lord and Lord have mercy. Do you know what? The preacher died in two days. Words of wisdom from Adams County. <laughs> you know what? No. Sign that cat to a contract because it can freaking talk, Chris. It can talk. Put it behind the wheel of a car. See if it can drive. Remember that? Tootsies, the driving yeah. cat? He didn't, he didn't. Exactly. He wasn't even talking. This is a hello, my darling, hello, my baby, Warner Brothers J. Frog situation. Oh, my gosh. Sign that cat to a deal. It is phenomenal. I had to literally read that like three times, and it really hit me like, oh, my gosh, the cat is the one talking. Wow. S sign it to a contract, but watch out for those clauses. <laughs> oh cheesy alright well that's a look at the wit and wisdom forefathers and foremothers uh, such great stuff it's always good stuff Beautiful. are we ready for this question of the day Travis yeah lay it on me refresh my memory so the question is this one of these things doesn't belong Nathan the person who did not graduate from Quincy University was it John Mahoney Francis Slay Roy Brocksmith or the wrestler Kane Travis your thoughts um, you know, I thought I knew this. I got cocky up front, Chris. And the more <laughs> I think about it, the more I'm not sure. I'm going to say Francis Slay. Okay. Is that your final answer? That is. Ah, oh, you would be incorrect, Travis. Mm, I thought I might uh, be. This, I thought you knew it because you kind of hinted at it beforehand uh, up front, talking about more information about that person. But the answer is actually Kane. Kane did not. I knew he attended in the in, in Missouri somewhere. He went to school, right? 
he went to school in Bowling Green. Okay. And then he did actually attend Quincy University, and this is where the trickery comes in. He did not graduate from Quincy University. He graduated from another college, uh, but he did graduate from college, just not Quincy University. Those other guys, John Mahoney, of course, you know from from Frazier, uh, he graduated. There's a scholarship that just received like $1.5 million uh, within the last few years for that uh, program, for the John wow, Mahoney Scholarship. Very cool. Francis Slay is, uh, I think he's, I don't know if he's still the St. Louis mayor, or he definitely was a former mayor yeah, of St. Louis. Yeah. He did graduate from I didn't realize Quincy that. University. Huh. And then Roy Brocksmith also is uh, a Quincy University alum, but Kane did not graduate. So that is the answer. And Travis, the reason we bring that up is uh, we actually going to put you guys in a little bit of a limbo for the next episode. It's our season finale episode, and we're still waiting. We could have a, a surprise guest, or uh, we, we're going to have a guest either way, because it's a people episode. Um, but we're trying to get things lined up. We quite haven't got it figured out yet, Travis. We're still working on those, uh, working on the the background information to bring in that special guest. It'll we'll keep you on the edge of your seat because we're on the edge of our seat to figure it out too. <laughs> Yeah, so we'll be wrapping up the season with uh, that in our people episode for season our episode twelve of season three. Travis, before we wrap this episode up, are we missing anything? Listeners are welcome to text or call us at six one two six 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 nine four five three. That's six one two six 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 nine four five three. And you can give us a shout. Any thoughts, feedback? What scared the crap out of you the most on this episode? You can also check us on uh, social media or wildquincy.com. We'll get you there. We look forward to hearing what you have to say. I think that's all for me, Chris. Anything else? No, we'll catch you guys on the Patreon side next week for your After Hours episode. But for Travis Hoffman, I'm Chris Ketters, and you've been listening to Wild Quincy. We'll catch you guys next time. Take care, everybody. Wild Quincy is released every other Tuesday and is produced by Chris Ketters and Travis Hoffman. Sound designed by Downdraft Sound and Editing and music by Travis Hoffman Music. I'm Bo Beecraft, and thanks for listening to Wild Quincy. Wild Quincy.